you use them. T-minus three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. Welcome, welcome, welcome. BizDoc Podcast. This week we got some really great stuff to cover. I'm here as usual with Kai Lode and Kellyanne, the Swiss Army Knife, pulling charts, looking at the chat, and doing all that while we talk. Yep. Um, a couple things this week. Uh, in section one, we got stats. Macs are still growing. And then TikTok is still growing. CEOs are talking about AI, talking a lot. And unicorns. Are they rare again? They were pretty plentiful in 2021. Yeah. And then, of course, we have a BizDoc case study. And this week, Barstool Sports. You have been asking what on earth happened with Barstool and Penn and how did he buy it back for a dollar? I've got the case study that unpacks that for you. But first, we go to the stats. The Macs are, the Macs are macking. Um, take a look at this chart. I found that to be very interesting this week. It has been 25 years since the iMac was introduced. Macintosh, of course, goes all the way back to 1984, the famous commercial. But it's been 25 years since the iMac came up. And we got this chart right here. There we go. There it is. So take a look at that. Since 2001 to 2022, 9X. It's just amazing. It just keeps going. And meanwhile, the other side of the aisle, you can get a great laptop now. A Windows laptop works really, really well. Great features and everything in it for like 900 bucks. Best Buy's got them for 900 bucks. And these are quality laptops. Um, I'm not going to name the brands, but they're, they're quality. But, but take a look at this, Kai. You've got $4 billion in Mac sales in 01 and then $40 billion in 22. So it's not letting up. And that is coming up on the 25 years since Steve went out there on stage and announced the iMac. And I just, I just think it's phenomenal that this product is still growing, but growing at this rate. And in the last two years, the growth rate has actually been increasing. Yeah, I think, uh, I think obviously this, is, this surprised me looking at it. Now, I'd take the last 2021 and then like going into the end of it with a grain of salt because obviously that's when, when a lot of the COVID uh, checks came in where the economy went boom and we'll kind of see how that relates to some of the other charts afterwards. Um, but the biggest thing for me, if we looked at the chart on the previous years, it kind of stalled out and then it, there's a spike towards the very end. So it's interesting to see how the Macs are still going, and I think it just it goes to show the power of the Apple ecosystem and bringing it in and how if you have one Mac Apple product, it's so much easier to just stay in the ecosystem and then you keep buying, although you're probably not buying as regularly or as often because of the obviously the nat naturally the price. You're still staying within the ecosystem in a way where you don't want to like venture out of it to get everything disconnected. Yeah, I, you know, going back, I had read a lot about uh, Macs and when I started my career in business, Mac was a very expensive design computer, but it was the only design computer to have. It did mm -hmm. so many things better than the PCs did. And so as a design computer, it was what you needed, to, but it was two, three times the cost of others. So marketing had one or two Macs, but the CFO's office was always very careful because it just blew right through the budget that they had for individual headcount. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the whole iOS ecosystem. And I think there's something to that because all the apps and everything that are working now that work on your phone, there's a lot of interchange that's happening and the Macs are just getting better. And they're still more expensive, but not crazy expensive. But as you correctly point out, 2020, 2021, 22, there's been a spike up. 
in those um, yeah, the, the laptops, the Air Mac, just MacBook Air, let me say. Yep. I call it an Air Mac, AirPods, yeah. Air Mac. Yeah. Boy, you got to keep it straight. But <laughs> I just found it very, very interesting and thought we'd put it up this week. So the things you do on computers and the things you do on your phone, yep. Byte Dance. Look at this. We're going to take a look at this. So we're going to leave this chart up for a little while here and talk over this one. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll take the lead here. Uh, so obviously we see on this chart the annual revenue since being founded. We see that Meta is on the top, but Meta is also year 16 slash 17 or 17 slash 18, uh, where the only other contender here is ByteDance, which is also known as TikTok, the parent company. Um, and they're at 85 billion, and you're looking at they're at year, what, nine. So they've reached 85% of the same revenue that uh, Meta has in half the time. So I think, I think there's multiple components to this that has allowed it. I think that the, one of the things that I'd be interested in seeing here is like when these different companies were, were started and like how much slower it is versus uh, ByteDance, obviously has been out for a couple of years now and they've really hammered on the mobile only and that's where we've seen a rapid growth because now everyone has phones and then obviously they've, they've been good at hitting a social media for a younger demographic, which is exploding on that end. And if you look, at the 80, they hit this 85 billion number like year eight, nine, and you look at our 16, 17, that's when uh, Meta hit 85 billion total sales. And that's yep. long after they had WhatsApp, long after they have Instagram. And they had added tremendous other functionality to Meta. Um, it was before they started throwing money into the shredder on the uh, metaverse. But you take a look there, ByteDance has got to that number in exactly half the time. And here, year 18, YouTube sitting there at 29 billion, which is about a third. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think right at yep. a third, a third of the revenue in twice the years. And never mind, uh, you know, uh, poor little uh, Twitter yeah. or X, I guess it should be the expert or whatever. Snapchat there too. And Snapchat in there. They've never really had the driven economic underpinnings that that Facebook did or that YouTube did. And now you see what ByteDance is doing primarily with influencers. Although you're correct, ByteDance started when we had a whole new generation, a second generation, not a first generation, a second generation of digital natives yep. who grew up on digital but grew up on mobile. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew that from PHP, uh, the fantastic um, a company that Patrick Bet David founded back 2009, 2010 timeframe. And you see what happened there the software that he built had to have mobile components because they demand it, because they don't, the generation that became insurance agents on this incredible platform that Patrick built, you know, they don't go to Starbucks like their moms, dads, aunts, and uncles did and sit there for three hours with the laptop. They're on mobile. They're on the larger mobile screens, the, you know, iPhone Plus, and it's got to work at least partially well on, on the phone. So not only are they digital natives, they're mobile digital natives, and that is the group that ByteDance has figured out that ad model to, yep. and they've got to $85 billion. Let, a, let alone the algorithm. Obviously, the, the TikTok algorithm is, is something else where they're getting people, they're getting them hooked in, and, and people are really seeing a lot on that end. The other interesting part that I looked at on the numbers here is ByteDance is more than 2x YouTube, Twitter, and Snapchat combined. So it goes to show how monstrous it is because I thought YouTube was way bigger in terms of numbers, just in terms of the, the platform, let alone that it's also a Google platform, but it's still being slaughtered by both ByteDance and um, Meta or Facebook on that end. Although you know, TikTok's got great features, like that new feature, Hey TikTok. 
-hmm. said, hey, TikTok, how much money does my brother have in his checking account? It, no. So it's just kind of amazing. It probably has nothing to do with the data leaks going back to China or anything. <laughs> but I just thought it was really kind of a fantastic new feature. Yep. Um, Talking about AI. Speaking of AI. <laughs> Speaking of AI, we go from espionage and data leaks and TikTok taking all your data to AI. Um, check this out. I found this to be very interesting. Percent of companies, percent share of companies referencing AI on earnings calls. So what this is, an earnings call comes out on Wall Street. You know, the um, CEO does a nice introduction that usually means nothing, along with a bunch of safe harbor statements, which means that he means nothing, and legally he means nothing. Then the CFO gets on there and starts talking about the numbers. And check this out. If you go back to 2015, <clears throat> not so long ago, um, it was less than 1%. Now the most recent earning call in Q1 of 2023, where they, um, that was just, uh, so that's through March, which is only a couple months ago, they assessed everything, and it has gone from, 8% at the end of Q3 of 22 to 16%. So it's doubled from the end of Q3, so September 30th of last year, to this year, and it's gone from 8% to 16%, which means that of all the earnings calls that are going on, people talking about how the companies are doing, twice as many CEOs are talking about AI now as were eight months ago. And I think there's some lessons in here coming for um, Absolutely. jobs and among other things. Yep, I think, I think also AI is one of those things where it's what we've seen is it's such a fast trend in the way it moves. So if you're not catching it, and especially like the earlier you catch it, you're going to be left so far behind that it's going to be hard to catch up. So I think in terms of from the bigger companies and, and the shareholder meetings and really looking at, hey, I'm a shareholder. How can we have less people? How can we demand on less people? Because then that means that you have less money going to uh, hourly wages and stuff like that, and leverage AI more in a way where I'm going to get a higher return for my for my shareholder and more value of it. So I think that component is is huge, and it's probably not going to slow down, and it's only going to speed up as yep. it becomes more of a thing that needs to be conversated about. What's very interesting is Bailey, the golf girl, one of my two girls, <clears throat> she had an internship with a startup this summer. Mm -hmm. I won't say who. She has a little non-disclosure agreement. But it was interesting, I, she was asking me a few questions about this, about this. And I said, what are you working on? And she says, oh, I'm giving a little report to their CEO mm -hmm. about the possible application of AI. And I'm like, really? And she goes, yeah. And there was a couple systems that she was talking about. And so I gave her kind of a download on how you would describe that to the CEO because she knew exactly where it could help, what it could do. And I took her through a PNL saying, okay, is it going to help you with the sales level, the cost of goods sold level, or the OPEX level driving to ultimately EBITDA? And so I was giving her a little primer on that, but she was had it all figured out. But they wanted to know, and so one of her projects as an intern was, how do you think we can use the AI tools that have emerged to do things better, quicker, or more intuitively going forward? And the translation is, less people in the back office because AI does some of it for us and maybe more intelligence on the front end offering products to customers. So it was all very practical that resulted in a better experience for the customers, mm -hmm. this particular company. However, it also means that there would be less administrative jobs on some automated functions or functions that certain analysts, lower level analysts won't be need because it can feed you certain reports intuitively. Now, it still takes a person to go 
run the whole BI system and everything. But I thought it was kind of interesting looking at that. So, what was know, what was her verdict on AI? I just gave you her verdict on okay, AI. Okay, so that was it. Yeah, that, that was. I wasn't sure if this is the BizDocs now. No, 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 no. no. I, I took her on a tour of the PNL. Yeah, she was very appreciative of that. But this was all her, all her doing on there. Yeah. And of course, she wants to go study sport management and sports analytics. Yeah. So she's already uh, working on her geek side. So there you go. I like so, it. Awesome. So, Speaking of like AI and geeks and startups, yep. Next, we, we have the next chart here. If they want to pull it up here, uh, tell me what you found here. This is yeah, this unicorns. is this is this is very very interesting. So this is a unicorns in terms of when they came, uh, obviously by year and then volume. So the blue line states the U.S. or the North America, and then the green is the rest of the world as well. And what we see is that they've been low in terms of, and for the people watching, unicorns are a startup that gets a valuation of a billion dollars, correct? Correct. Yes. So obviously to be a million dollar business is a big feat, but then a billion dollar is, is even that much more rare, right? Hence the name unicorns. And as we see 2016, it's kind of trickling up and down depending on it. And then really up until the end of 2020 and then 2021, it just takes off. They went from unicorns to horses at that point. Um, for a solid two and a half years until it kind of tapers off. Now, going back to then the first chart we were looking at in terms of referencing with the IMAX, we're seeing the same spike up in the same period, which for me then kind of indicates the big COVID spending and then um, definitely COVID spending and the stimulus to the economy because a lot of that was going back into the tech companies that are leveraged and getting big valuations and stuff like that. Um, so I think that it went right up and then it just came right back down to kind of normalize again as things started normalizing more. And as we see the latest one here, three new unicorns in July where it peaked at 67 in December of 2021. Yeah, if you're in your car and you're listening to this, basically the chart shows, you know, 10 unicorns a month, something like that, created from 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, goes up a little bit, down for COVID. At the outbreak in of early COVID, 2020, yeah. chart goes down a bit there with the outbreak of COVID. And then we printed money known as stimulus checks and threw, what, $1.6 trillion into the economy. Yep. And you can see 2021 and 22, number of unicorns jumps up. Well, that's unicorn valuation, which is also related to an inflated dollar. Mm -hmm. So we have to keep that in mind. And finally, it's coming back down now to levels which I call return to sanity city. Um, and, uh, of course, unicorns, um, I think it was coined by, can you look this up? I think it was coined, the term unicorn was coined by Aileen Lee, who's a prominent uh, venture capitalist, really sharp. Um, and I think she was the one that coined the term. But anyway, now we're coming back to two, three unicorns a month. And a lot of people, including me, seem to think that that's probably more rational and representative because we didn't suddenly start building 10, 20, yeah. 30, 67 unicorn companies a freaking month. You know, what we had was valuation inflation as the VCs were flush with money, number one. Number two, we devalued the dollar because mm -hmm. of printing all this money. And so there's an artificial effect. But now it's down to even lower number of unicorns per month than it was even before COVID in 18 and 19, which I call a full return to rational sanity about um, valuations. And so that's where it is. Was I correct, Kellyanne, that the woman that coined the term unicorn in Silicon Valley was Aileen Lee? 
see the verdict here. She's devoted to finding the answer. Yeah, anyway. She's, she's digging into it here. Uh, but no, I think, it, obviously, it just goes to show how out of nowhere we didn't suddenly get 67 yes, times. Yes, 2013. Say what? 2013. Alien 2013. Lee of uh, Cowboy Eileen, Ventures or yeah, something? Yeah, Eileen Ventures. Lee in 2013 coined the term unicorn startup. There you go. So without being quoted on the stock exchange, interesting. But yeah, I think also like we didn't suddenly overnight get exponentially better, uh, especially during a time of turmoil like that. So it's it's something something fishy was going on in the waters there. Yep. And so now we have a word. We have a word today from our sponsor, and we really appreciate American Heart for Gold. You know, all those unicorns are getting made. Hopefully, that someday they turn their valuation into real gold. And a word from them. Business today are facing a rough world. Banks are failing. Inflation is never ending. And a looming recession threatens to wipe out stock value. That's bad for business, but even worse for retirement funds, especially your retirement fund. And to make things worse, the government is targeting those 401ks and IRAs with heavy new taxes to pay for the social justice agenda. The good news is that there's a way to help protect your financial future. Invest in precious metals. American Heart for Gold will ship physical gold and silver directly to your door, or they can set you up with a gold IRA. A gold IRA can shield your wealth from this economic meltdown, and the best part is this method is tax-free and penalty-free. Analysts predict that gold is set to hit all-time highs. If you have retirement funds that you cannot afford to lose, now is the time to call the only precious metal dealer that I trust, American Heart for Gold. They'll show you how to protect your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. With the finest products, amazing customer service, and a buyback commitment, American Heart for Gold has earned a five-star rating from thousands of reviews and an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Tell them the BizDoc sent you, and they'll give you $5,000 of free silver on your first order. Click the link in the description or call 866-535-0767. For those of you that are watching, it's on the screen. 866-535-0767. Or from your mobile, just text BIZ, B-I-Z, to 65532. Again, text BIZ, B-I-Z, to 65532 from your mobile phone. Our thanks to American Hartford Gold. Okay, I found my board. All right. Here we have a little case study real quick on what happened Barstool Sports. You probably saw the headlines. Somehow, Dave Portnoy, the founder, buys it back for a dollar. What all happened? Well, first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to take you on a really fast ride. Some of you may not be clients or customers of Barstool Sports. It may be a brand, and for what they do, they have a take on sports, a take on gambling, fantasy, and many other things of life, uh, relationships too. They get a little edgy. But that may not be something you watch. I wanted to take you through it so you can kind of see what it's all about. So real quick, once upon a time, Barstool Sports was founded by this guy, Dave Portnoy, who's holding up pizza there, symbolic of he does pizza reviews of pizzerias and pizza everywhere. It's like a little sideshow, not a sideshow, it's an additional show off to the side of the Barstool Sports programming where you'll see him giving ratings and everything on crust and taste and flavor. That's Dave. 
And back in 2003, Barstool Sports started as a newspaper, a little newspaper that was in Boston. And from there, it became a media empire, and it followed this flow. So I'm going to take you through real quick. 2003, the print became the website as online basically became digital print of the future. Then they went into radio. And then from radio, they were on Sirius uh, XM radio for a while. I think that ended in 2021, I'm pretty sure. And then that led to those eight, those radio shows because they had a whole channel. I think it was Channel 85 or something that was on Sirius XM programmed throughout the day. Well, each one of those programming slots became a podcast, which is sort of online radio, if you think of it that way. And then after an acquisition by <clears throat> Penn Entertainment, as they were known at the time, they started the sports book. So you go from that newspaper to online, to having your own radio show on um, Sirius, to a set of podcasts, to finally the Barstool Sportsbrook. So you can see there was a very natural evolution of becoming a media company presenting their take on this and that. Eric Nardini, the CEO, used to say, we're basically an omni-media company that presents our take on a variety of things with interesting characters to deliver that take. Well, now we go to the investors. So that's Barstool, and that's their rough evolution given to you in about a minute. <clears throat> the investors, they started out, it was founded by Dave, and then the Churnin Group in 2016, they acquired 51% of it. You may recall that Dave did a big deal about it, did an emergency press conference and announced that the Churnin Group had acquired 51%. They were moving to New York. Um, and that Eric Canardini, Eric a couple months after they announced this, I think this was in January, and by July, I think, is when Erica was announced CMO. But everything was, and she was the CMO, announced as CEO. And with Dave Portnoy staying on with full creative control of everything that happened. And then in 2018, Chernin was said to have invested another $25 million in the enterprise at about $100 million valuation. Okay, that's how they got there, Tom. But... How on earth did Penn get involved? Well, here's where it happened. This is the old logo for Penn National, which looks something like a head-on collision between a, you know, kind of a, a Vegas icon and the University of Maryland. <clears throat> and they um, announced that they were buying 36% of Barstool Sports in 2020. And they said, look, we're putting $160 million in. There was about $20 million in stock or something. Anyway, it was an implied value of about $450 million. Also, they had the option to acquire the rest. And Chernin, remember, take a look. They had 51%. So they had control of the company, literally control from the board, even though Dave still had full creative control. And his associate, Eric Nardini, was CEO. But nonetheless, they were controlled by Chernin. Down here, Chernin gave up its control provisions, but still kept a percent of the company that Penn Entertainment basically had bought. And so they had this option to fully acquire it. So remember, that's about the time Barstool Sports Sports Book was announced. And Penn also changed their logo to something a little bit more modern and interesting. So you can see what I mean. Suddenly, it looks like something you know a little bit more modern. They got rid of this old this old logo. So that's how the investors got there. What happened? On August 8th of this year, we heard some things announced. Penn announces, first, a partnership with ESPN. And the Barstool Sportsbook became ESPN Bet. That's what it's going to be. And there's exclusivity with Penn and ESPN. 
and ESPN's going to get about a billion and a half dollars, about a hundred million a year over 10 year with warrants, which is like a coupon that you can cash in in the future to buy another $500 million worth of the company. And an interesting quote that was in the middle of the discussion was that this is a highly aligned long-term strategic partner. So what do they do? They divest Barstool Sports. Portnoy buys back the company for a dollar, but did they really divest it? They legally divest it. Now let me tell you what that means. A legal divestiture means that you legally are no longer owning something. We're going to find out why would Penn not want to legally own it anymore. I'm about to take you through that. And in exchange for not legally owning it anymore and giving Portnoy the company for a dollar, there is a structured non-compete and other covenants that Dave has to obey. So in other words, he can't go out, he can still offer fantasy football advice and things, but he can't operate as a sports book. He can't compete with um, Penn. And lastly, Penn gets to receive 50% of any future monetization. That could include a sale. So really, it's like Penn owns 50% of the company. No, they don't. Legally, they don't want to own it, and we're about to find out why. But they have an option clause, which mandatory will pay them. If he ever sold the company, they get 50%. Well, that's like having a 50% partner. Company gets sold, you get half, they get half. But legally, they don't own it. So let's go take a look at that. Why? Well, Penn wanted a stake in online sports betting, also known as OSB. Take a look at this chart. Over there, you can see DraftKings at 20. Look, first of all, look at the growth. This is only in the last four years, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, across the bottom. Look at the growth to $1.6 billion a, a year in revenue here in these United States. DraftKings, 29% of the market. FanDuel, 35% of the market. Remember, those are the venture-funded guys that have been fight, fighting it out for several years. And then Caesars, MGM, and others. Penn wanted a piece of this market. That's what they wanted. Now, why did they have to divest Barstool Sports to get it? Well, here's why. They were trying to get licenses in more than just Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was like the first license that was announced. I think the second one was Michigan. And they were going door to door trying to get license. But why couldn't they get those licenses? They were having regulator and compliance problems with states that were very uncomfortable with the wild nature of barstool sports programming and the things they would say. And in a world where there's gambling, which is highly regulated, where they want people to be in check, they don't want you to say certain things, it was increasingly difficult for Penn to get license approval. Decision, all right, let's divest, divest barstool but let's make sure that we retain 50%. So if he sells in the future for $500 million, we get 250 of it to help them get at least some of the money they invested back. You see how that works? Okay, well now you've solved the barstool pro problem and it was ESPN that got you in the game? Exactly. Why? ESPN is a huge brand and a more than willing partner. And ESPN has been looking for more revenue and more sources of it, finding a way to grow in the face of subscribership losses on cable and satellite that have not been replaced by ESPN Plus. And so they've been restructuring for the past two years. And we heard this year in 2023, <clears throat> how many announcements have we seen 
three that one of them announced a uh, 20-some uh, talent had been let go from ESPN, two other announcements about restructuring, and a couple other talent. So they've been trying to cut talent contracts and get ESPN into a more profitable point. Exactly. So ESPN's a willing partner. Why? <clears throat> they're looking for restructuring, and they're like, hey, if you'll help us get into OSB, back to the other chart that showed you how much money's in it, and we're going to get $100 million a year, that is exactly what ESPN needs. Now ESPN needs a pen to be successful. And guess what? ESPN's going to help because it's their brand, and now they're going to run all this programming. The other thing that was going on is, do you remember when all the gambling controversy came out online? I do. And remember when DraftKings and uh, FanDuel were almost seen as radioactive to the sports leagues? Oh, we can't have gambling on the walls of a sports stadium. We can't have TV broadcasting. Exactly what half of the audience is already doing, betting on sports whether it's 10 bucks across a coffee table with your brother or you're going to sports books or you're going online to gamble, America was doing it. And then they had these ways to bet on fantasy, fantasy context. Remember at first, the sports leagues really thought FanDuel and DraftKings, 35% and 29% of the market right now were radioactive. But guess what? They warmed up to them. And how did the leagues warm up? With money. The official online sports partner of the NFL. You don't get to say that unless there's a big check in the wallet of the NFL. That's why. So Penn couldn't get through the regulators with Barstool, decided to divest, put a placeholder out there to get half of any future sale, but gave Dave Portnoy the company back so they could say, hey, regulators, we don't own it. He owns it. He's got control and he owns the whole thing. We just have an agreement with him that he won't compete with us. And if he ever sells in the future, we get a bunch of money. But we're no part of that. We're over here with ESPN, our new best friend. And now that is what Penn is doing. Penn is getting ESPN into the game. ESPN is putting a brand to get Penn into the game. And they're going after that chart I showed you to take a chunk out of FanDuel, take a a chunk out of DraftKings, and maybe try to get a chunk out of Caesars and MGM, which are also big online sports uh, betting providers, as you saw there. And that's how this happened. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is how Barstool Sports returned for its next chapter with Dave Portnoy owning what once upon a time he owned in the next episode that I call The Return of the Jedi. Dave Portnoy. That's it. Thank you so much. That's the story, and that's how it went. Back to the studio. I love my case studies. I hope you love them, too. I do them because I want to leave you better than I found you with information that's helpful to help your business go higher. And at Valuetainment, we have something else to help your business go higher, the Vault Conference. Coming up on August 30th to September 2nd in Hollywood, Florida, which is on the coast around the corner from Fort Lauderdale Airport. These people will be there along with the guy I'm hiding, Patrick Bet David, the founder of Valuetainment and the founder of the Vault Conference to provide all sorts of sessions on building your business, extending your business, management for your business, strategy over the two days down there at the Diplomat Hotel. He also has some special guests this year, such as Tom Brady, who will talk about building teams with different players and yet winning championships with those different players and rebuilding teams. 
Well, that's something you and I do when we lose key employees. We have to rebuild teams. Do you think Brady's got some message in there for your business? You bet. We also have Mike Tyson is going to be there. And he talks about always have a strategy before you get in the ring. And sometimes the game plan goes away the first time you get hit in the mouth, but you have to replan. Mike is great and he's very inspiring. And I like listening to him because I kind of feel that even as the sportsman and a boxer that he was, he provides really clever insights on how you reshuffle the deck when you get hit in the mouth in your business and about the mindset to keep. Really fun to listen to. And this year, if you've read the book, Unreasonable Hospitality, and you know about that wonderful restaurant, 11 Madison Park in New York, Will Gadara will be there talking to Patrick David about all the techniques that he put in place to make his restaurant number one. That is part of the whole package of value we have there. If you're already coming to the vault, think about bringing a couple of your staff people because I'm also going to do a special session on raising capital, building pitch decks, and getting ready for that sale. On behalf of Patrick Bet David and everybody pulling the vault together, I hope you're there. And as I like to say, thank you for watching. I'm Tom Ellsworth, the BizDoc, and I hope I left you better than I found you.